In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening. It is, uh, as the Lord himself, as St. Peter says, it is indeed good that we are here to take the days that God has bestowed upon us as an opportunity to spend them with him, to come to a deeper awareness of, a deeper appreciation of the relationship that we share with him. And to be mindful of the fact that we enter into relationship with God for our salvation and for the salvation of those that have been entrusted to our care, that may be most immediately spouses and children, grandchildren, certainly neighbors and friends, siblings, living and deceased, parents, but also the stranger, the enemy, and the countless people who are unknown to us and yet may be impacted by the manner in which we live our Catholic lives. And the more able we are to cooperate with the grace of God, the better we can be instruments for the salvation of others as well. In truth, brothers, it can be slightly a daunting task to think that God chooses to use us as instruments of his grace, especially if we are acutely aware of our sinfulness, of our own weakness. We might be tempted to ask the question, why did God choose me? Why does God choose us? This was the question that my brother put to me on the day of my ordination as I stepped into the pew with my family after having processed down the main aisle. Really, it was the wrong time to ask that question because we were right there and this was about to happen. So, for whatever reason that God had called me, there we were. But as only younger brothers can do, he asked the $50, 60000000 million question, why did God choose you? Because he knows better than most my sins, my weaknesses, and my failures. It's an interesting question. But it's an answer we're never actually going to get because God is under no obligation to open up his mind to us and explain divine providence to us. And so we can spend all of our energies trying to answer a question that really is not ours to answer, or we can accept the fact of what God has revealed to us, that our Lord asks us to cooperate with him in sharing grace with the world. He knows how to use us, when to use us, in the manner that we need to be used. And so we do need times like this weekend to spend time in prayer in order to listen more attentively to him and in that way to be more pliable in his hands so that we can do whatever it is that God commands us to do. And of course, you know better than I the world in which we live, the church in which we find ourselves today in the 21st century and how desperately all of us are needed to offer grace to the world however it is that God may ask us to do that. These words were written over a hundred years ago. We see faith, the root of all the Christian virtues, lessening in many souls. We see charity growing cold. The young generation daily growing in depravity of morals and views. The church of Jesus Christ attacked on every side by open force or by craft. 
a relentless war waged against the sovereign pontiff, and the very foundations of religion undermined with a boldness which waxes daily in its intensity. If you did not know that those words had been written a hundred years ago by Leo XIII at the beginning of his own reflections on St. Joseph and St. Joseph's life in the church, you would think that he had adequately described the world in which we live today. Virtue, lessening in souls, charity, not only growing cold, but now having grown cold. Younger generations, plural now, not just one, two, maybe three, having found themselves living in a world where there are no morals. and Whatever views people want, they simply put them forth. The church certainly under attack on all sides, both from out and within. Wars waged against the freedom of the church. And as he says, by way of conclusion, religion itself, all religion in truth, but most especially our Catholic faith, undermined with a boldness that waxes daily, increases daily in intensity. He wrote this, though, not as an expression of despair or even an expression of frustration, but to provide a context for then to whom the church should look for strength and solace in the midst of all these difficulties, and especially for us as men in the world, in the church, entrusted with families of the flesh, families of the Spirit. To whom do we go? Of course, our Lord and Savior. But then, as he will go on to express, an intimate relationship with St. Joseph. If the Holy Father, or the Father, Heavenly Father, rather saw fit to entrust his greatest treasures, Our Lady and his Son, into the hands of St. Joseph, how can we ourselves keep out of his hands as well. He, the universal patron of the church. And so as we reflect upon the Holy Family, we reflect upon family life, and we reflect upon our place in it, a good place to begin is the man who is asked to head this Holy Family, to hold it in place, to support it and sustain it. A world that he lived in, but in some ways was not different than the world that Leo XIII describes, the world in which we find ourselves now. It's a danger to somehow think, although we might want to fall into this danger, that we're dealing with problems and issues with an intensity that modern man has never felt before. Part of that's increased because we're the ones actually experiencing them. But also, in truth, they really aren't different. We've always struggled with sin and selflessness, our selfishness with greed and lust and inordinate desires. From the moment Adam and Eve accepted the lies of Satan, man has struggled to live as God has asked him to live. We've always needed God to live the life that he wants us to live. And so, yes, there are a multiplicity of issues with which we must contend in this day and age, and especially in the last several months, those things that are attacking the very fabric and the heart of the life of the church herself. And while we might be tempted to a certain degree of anger, definitely, maybe a certain degree of sadness, truly, but to guard ourselves, especially against a degree of despair, to somehow wonder, does any of this make any difference? Is anybody convicted and truly seeking to believe what it is they're supposed to believe and then governing themselves by what they're supposed to believe? It's not just enough to believe in God. Because you can believe in God and keep him at a distance. You not only have to believe in him, you have to allow your lives to be governed by him. 
Everything you do, everything about who you are, has to begin and end with God. That's a difficult task in the best of circumstances. It's made even more difficult, but it's not an impossible task. That's another one of those lies that Satan whispers in our ears. Oh, yes, God dangles carrots of grace and truth in front of you. But in reality, you can't get there. You really can't do the things that God and the church are asking you to do. So do your best, whatever that may be. If you're lukewarm and mediocre and maybe slightly indifferent, you're probably better than most. Maybe you could be a little bit better and you hit and miss there, here, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then that's okay. Satan just sits back. He smiles. He doesn't come at us fade on. He never does that. He comes at us sideways. And so mediocrity and indifference and in lukewarmness, kind of being passed off as fervor and zeal and as intensity, we convince ourselves that we're doing good things. And maybe we are doing some good things, but there's always more that can be given to God. The motto of the Society of Jesus, St. Ignatius of Loyola, that great soldier who, who took his passion for the defense of his homeland and put that on the global stage in defense of the church. Ad maiorum dei gloria. Not just the greater glory of God, the greatest glory of God. And so the trajectory of our lives, brothers, is not just choosing between good and evil. That's actually the easy choice. We know what is evil. We know what is good, even if we try to dress it up or try to psychologize it or rationalize it. We know good and evil. Uh, the real choice, the real difficulty at times is choosing the greatest good, making sure that everything about who I am and everything that's in my heart is seeking to give God the greatest, leaving nothing behind, leaving nothing back. And so in a world that tells us it's okay to slack off, in a world that encourages selfishness and narcissism and solipsism. In a world that celebrates the individual above anything and everything. A world that puts emotions and feelings before everything. It's hard to push through that, to wade through that. So where do we go? Where do we look? Of course, the answer is always to Christ and to Holy Mother Church. In each age, regardless of how the church may be, how the institution may be thriving, or maybe right now the church so much as an institution is not, but the truth remains the same. And these holy men and women who have gone before us are still available to us. We began this evening in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord. That's not just a pious gesture. It's an expression of faith. Profound faith in a God who is still alive and active in his church and among his people. And therefore, this God who is alive brings together the church militant, us here on earth, the church sanctified in heaven and glory, and the church in purgation that truly needs our prayers. While we might be separated one from another in the flesh, we're bound and held together by Christ himself, who is indeed alive. We sang his praises. We knelt down before him. And the simple question that I oftentimes put to my faithful is either you believe it or you don't believe it. The mystery of the Most Holy Eucharist admits to no exceptions. There is no middle ground. I believe a little bit. There is no little bit. Either he is present in the tabernacle, he was present on the altar, he will be there when we celebrate Mass tomorrow morning. Either that is true or it's not. And if it's not, then in truth we've got better things to do with our time. We shouldn't be here. Go home. 
get in your cars. I'll go back home, get on my, actually I won't go back home because they've got 10 inches of snow on the ground right now. So I'm going to stay here for a few more days until that disappears. But once that's gone, I'll go back home. But we are here because we believe something. And so what we're doing here in believing this is asking for that strength, returning again to the one person, the one place where we can find the strength that we need to live rightly in God's sight, to push aside the lies that are being whispered in our ears, to be better instruments of God's grace and to take advantage of those men that God has set before us as exemplars, those who followed his son, manifesting that we too can follow his son. Will we be saints in this life? I don't know. Maybe there are indeed saints among us. But truly, any saints among us are going to be the first to say that they are not saints among us. And so if you demure just a little bit and say, I'm probably not as holy as I should, that's a pretty good start to being as holy as you ought to be. And all of this, this time of silence, this time of intense prayer, all of this is to provide you an opportunity to leave here renewed and strengthened to be an instrument of God's grace, to take on this world in which you find yourself that Leo XIII described 100 plus years ago that still seems to be operative as well. When he begins his reflections on St. Joseph, one of the things that's beautiful about them is that he looks to the St. Joseph in the Old Testament. We often forget Joseph in the Old Testament, the namesake precursor to Joseph in the New Testament. And their configuration or their similarities to each other are merely beyond, or more than rather, the names that they have in common. The Holy Father reminds us that St. Joseph of the Old Testament was indeed one who had found favor with God. And by virtue of founding favor with God, had a special goodwill that God had bestowed upon him. In in truth, a, a gentleness of spirit, knowing the story, the jealousy of his brothers that led them to betray him, to sell him into slavery. So jealous were they of who he was, the master dreamer, they called him. They couldn't handle who he was, plotted to kill him, but then were Hopefully, or we're appropriately told, no, let's not do that. Let's instead sell him into slavery. But that's going to come back not to haunt them, but to save them. Joseph, who eventually presides over the kingdom of Egypt and in that great power that's bestowed upon him, is able to feed not only the Egyptians, but then his brothers, his sisters, his whole family that find their way there trying to take care of their own needs. A man chosen by God a man endowed with God's special favor, a man who uses the endowments that God bestows upon him, not for himself, but for the salvation and the service of others, a man of compassion and of charity and mercy and forgiveness. All of that happens. If you remember the story of that beautiful encounter with Joseph and his brothers who initially don't recognize who he is, and then upon recognizing him, are afraid that he will treat them in the same manner in which they treated him. But he doesn't do that. That's not who he is. No man of God does tit for tat. No man of God seeks revenge. But it's not just the avoidance of evil. Not just that he doesn't seek revenge. He welcomes and forgives with open arms and love. He invites them to take advantage of the bounty that he himself had overseen. And the same is true of Joseph in the New Testament. Except the harvest and the gifts that he has had bestowed upon him are not things that are tangible solely, that come and go. It is the tangible and the intangible. It is the Word incarnate. It is our Blessed Mother, but also the whole reality that has been entrusted to St. Joseph. The salvation of the world is in the womb of Our Lady, chosen from her own immaculate conception, 
to be the perfect instrument by which salvation would come into the world. God could have found a trillion different ways to achieve this, but as tradition teaches us over and over again, this was the most fitting and proper. Paul alludes to this over and over again, especially in his exhortation to the Hebrews. Since sin entered through a man, how fitting and proper that sin is destroyed through a man as well. But this is a unique man. This is the God-man. And so his mother, this tabernacle of grace, the one who accepts truth himself inside of her womb, relies both upon St. Joseph to bring them to fruition, to protect and guide and safeguard them. Of course, we know from Scripture that Joseph was a righteous man. Tradition has a, a number of different understandings of who Joseph was. Was he young? Was he old? It really doesn't matter if he was young or he was old. What we know is he was righteous. He was chosen. God would know, as the angels spoke to him, that Joseph would respond accordingly. Would it have been easy for him, as his initial instinct was, was to divorce Mary quietly? No. Once he listens to God, he does what God commands him to do. Not always with full understanding. That's another misconception of the modern age. You have to know and understand everything. Maybe so, of the created world, but the truth is, you're never going to know and understand all the things of God. No matter how much you live, no matter how long you live, no matter how long God unfolds himself to you, because you can't know what God knows because you're not God. So no matter how much he tells you, no matter how much he shares with you, that's why he has parsed out and shared with you the things that you actually need to know. And what are those things you need to know? That he loves you. And how much does he love you? By sending you the gift of his son to expiate your sins and to reconcile you to him through the mystery of his son's sacrifice. That's all you need to know. And then, finally, follow after the Son. Live the life the Son has gained for you. And when you do that, as my own Son is indeed beloved to me, you now are my sons as well, beloved to me. Everything else may, maybe not. I don't know. You don't have to know. You have to listen to God. Be obedient to God. Whether it's through the message of an angel that comes to you in a dream, or God speaking to you through Holy Mother Church, God speaking to you in your own prayer, God speaking to you through your priests, your friends, your family, your children. God speaks to us in a variety and a myriad of ways. The beauty of this time is to train our hearts to listen, not just our ears to hear, but our hearts to truly listen to what it is that God is asking us to do. And you know as well as I, if we're really, really honest, we know how to listen to God. The difficulty is putting it into action. We come up with all sorts of reasons why I can't do it now or I can't do it this way or that's not really what God said to me. And we have a great capacity for self-delusion. I don't know if that's a unique character to Americans or living in the 21st century or it's just the human condition has this ability to delude ourselves. But God continues to speak and whisper. God never gives up on us. And if indeed God has some task, which he does for all of us in his providence, he's going to bring that about. And so Joseph, this righteous man, listens to the message of the angel Gabriel and does what it is that he is commanded to do. Takes Mary into his home. Takes custody of her. And as St. John Paul II describes him, he takes custody of the Redeemer. He takes charge of this child who's going to change and transform the world. He is the head of this household. 
We don't know all the specifics because, as we hear both in Luke and Matthew's Gospel, there comes a time after the Lord is found in the temple where he returns to his home in Nazareth, he is obedient to his parents, and he grows in virtue and holiness and favor among men. And then some 18 years later, he comes on the scene and submits to baptism by the hands of his cousin and begins his public ministry, begins the process of bringing salvation to completion. But we know enough, and actually we know more than enough, not only because of who our Lord is and what it is that he accomplishes, but also Our Lady and St. Joseph be chosen to not only raise the child to protect him, uh, but also then to teach him virtue, to help him understand his role as leader, as head, the selflessness. He discovers our Lord. He submits in humility at the hands of Mary and Joseph. And so here is Joseph. Very little said or known about him. And he disappears almost as quickly as we hear about him. And yet we know he is the universal patron of the church. He is given to us as the universal patron of the church precisely because what we do know is all that we need to know. Again, Leo XIII writes, God placed him at the head of the family as a faithful and prudent servant so that with fatherly care he might watch over his only begotten son. He goes on, he, Joseph, among all, stands out in his august dignity, since by divine disposition he was guardian, and according to human opinion, he was father of God's son. He's a prudent and faithful servant. He stands out by his august dignity, since by divine disposition, by God's will, he was known as the father of the Savior. And then he's the father of families, and all fathers, you, find in St. Joseph the personification of paternal solicitude, of vigilance, of love, and peace, and fidelity. These are the things that St. Joseph makes manifest, especially that solicitude, not concerned about himself, only about Mary and Joseph, or Mary and Jesus, the vigilance caring for them. These are the things that Joseph models for all of us, but especially for those of us who have custody of people in our care, fathers of the flesh, fathers of the spirit. But there is a, a certain uniqueness, if you will, a, a manliness to this as well, where there is a passivity to Our Lady receiving the good news. Joseph is entrusted with it, in a sense carrying it ahead, safeguarding it, sharing it with others. When we look at St. Joseph, when we look at how little that is said about him or known about him in Scripture, it actually becomes an opportunity to reflect on the significance of silence in the unfolding of sacred mysteries, but silence in the life of St. Joseph particularly. Because what really becomes important then, brothers, is not what we say, but who we are and what it is that we do. We'll be better servants if it is in conformity our wills to the will of our Father. Not just giving lip service, but actually doing the things that we are supposed to do. So it's not important that Joseph wrote anything. Even less important that he said anything. Most importantly, that he did what it is he was supposed to do. As we come together to listen to the Lord, I encourage you to go back to St. Joseph again as that model in silence. That's that figure that stands before us in his august dignity, who as father and custodian of our Lord, allowed himself in humility to be led by God to do what the Lord was asking him to do, but to be husband 
and Father. And then eventually, by the design of God and Holy Mother Church, to become the patron of all of us. So that as he is for us, so we can be for others as well. Vigilant in the things that God asks us to do. Solicitous in those entrusted to our care. Humble enough to be allowed ourselves to be led and guided wherever it is that we're being asked to go and to do whatever it is that we're being asked to do. In the remaining talks, I want to unfold a little bit more completely for us the implications of following after St. Joseph and what this means for us in order to fulfill it in our daily lives. We have to be men of fervent and diligent relationship with God in Christ. How we worship, how we come before him, especially in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We also have to be men of obedience and fidelity, those two going hand in hand. We have to be men of authentic leadership, not leadership as it is exercised by the world, but leadership as it is made manifest by Christ on Holy Thursday evening when he removes his garment and washes the feet of his disciples. And then finally, we have to be men of prayer. The relationship that is forged with our Lord in the tabernacle, the relationship that's forged with our Lord at the altar of sacrifice, has to be nourished and sustained by our own daily lives of prayer. And in this way, we can be like St. Joseph, silent in what it is that we say, but profoundly clear and zealous in what it is that we do, that we can be instruments of God's transforming grace for the world that we already know is in desperate need of it, but not only for the world's salvation, but for our own salvation as well. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.